books at this time to Psalm. Please be seated. Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the prophet Zechariah, chapter 3. Zechariah, chapter 3. If you're using the Red Pew Bible, that is on page 834. Page 834. Zechariah is the second to last book in the Old Testament. So if you can find Matthew, you go back to Malachi and then to Zechariah, the third chapter, and we'll be reading the entire chapter, beginning in verse 1. This is God's holy word. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you also will judge my house, and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among these who stand here. Hear, O Joshua the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant the branch. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to us this evening. Amen. Relying upon God for his help and blessing this evening, let's turn our attention back to Zechariah chapter 3, in particular verse 2. Here we find in verse 1, the prophet Zechariah is shown a vision of Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan at his right hand to oppose him. Verse 2, and the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? So here the angel of the covenant, even second person of the Trinity, Jehovah himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, standing there next to the high priest with Satan accusing the high priest. And the high priest is clothed in filthy garments representing the sins of Israel whom he represented as the high priest. And the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the angel of the covenant, the Lord himself, says, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. 
the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And he says concerning the high priest and concerning the people of God whom the high priest is there representing in all their sin, in all their filthiness, in all their folly and disobedience, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Powerful words from a powerful passage. But let's try to understand first the context here. We have this prophecy of Zechariah. Now, Zechariah was an Old Testament prophet who focused his ministry on the southern kingdom of Judah because by this point, as he's prophesying in the early 500s B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel has been conquered, long since conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., uh, roughly 200 years prior. The nation of Judah had been filled with great idolatry. They hadn't learned the lesson from the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom, and so they had perpetuated the idolatry and the disobedience that so characterized Israel to the north. They continued in this. They defiled God's worship, God's temple. They threw God's commandments behind their back and proceeded on a course of their own devising. And the Lord brought swift judgment. Though he was patient, it came swiftly. And eventually, in 586 B.C., the temple was destroyed as Babylon made repeated gradual incursions and invasions in the years leading up to that, took various captives such as Daniel in the years preceding, but eventually conquered Judah to the south, conquered and burned the city of Jerusalem, uh, um, pushed down its walls and burned the temple itself in 586 BC. Uh, we find ourselves in the days of Zechariah around, uh, uh, let's say, 516 or 520 something uh, BC. So about um, a number of years have gone by since 586 BC, about 70 years. But it's important to note that God's people began returning from captivity around 536. So around 536, you have the beginning of the first wave, followed by several other waves of captives coming back. You can read about this in Ezra and Nehemiah. And so they're returning from captivity, and they initially lay the foundation of the temple not too long after that return in 536. But about 15 years went by, and they didn't finish the temple. They laid the foundation. They encountered various obstacles. They found other things to take up their time. And they built, uh, at least in their own context, lavish homes with sealed panels. And they enjoyed, uh, to some extent, luxury in their own homes and in their own lifestyle, while the foundation of the temple lied in ruins and was unfinished, unfinished business. And so the Lord sent them two main prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And if you read in Haggai's prophecy, if you're familiar with that, he confronts them for their luxurious homes that they've been, you know, fixing up, doing home improvement, making everything look nice, whereas the temple is in ruins and there's a foundation that, that lies unfinished. And Zechariah, in a similar sense, confronts this, perhaps not as directly as Haggai or as emphatically. Zechariah has a number of other things that he's addressing, uh, the overall sinful condition of the people, the fact that they need to return to the Lord in repentance, and he looks at it from a much more of a macro scale than Haggai. And both of these prophets present a glorious future for the people of God. And there are messianic prophecies interlaced and interwoven in these prophets that point ahead to the coming of Christ and that point ahead to the, the glorious expansion of the kingdom to all nations of the world. But at this time, the two main leaders in the days of Zechariah were Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, who was something of a governor. And you'll notice him. He appears in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's from the house of David and uh, would have been heir to the throne, but they didn't really have a throne. They, they didn't have their own uh, state sovereignty. But he was the governor. And so you have the high priest as the religious leader 
and the governor Zerubbabel as the political leader. And there's quite a bit of material in Haggai and Zechariah, and uh, you get into Ezra and Nehemiah as well, you have a lot of material dealing with these two figures. They're very significant. And these prophets are continually urging them, both the leader politically and the leader religiously, to work together to see the kingdom of God established, to see the temple refurbished and rebuilt after decades of corruption in the state and in the church, and especially in the church. The priests of that day were well known for their corruption. And so when, when Zechariah addresses these issues with Haggai, they're, they're understanding the situation. Revival is necessary. It's not going to be my, by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That was the message of these two prophets because the people needed revival and they needed reformation in the church. The priests needed to return to the word of God to the priorities of the Word of God, to the practices and worship ordinances of the Word of God. They needed to seek first the kingdom, rebuild the temple, and restore biblical worship among the people of God. And that was understood to be important not only for Joshua the high priest, but for the well-being of the society. And so Zerubbabel was involved encouraging these things and promoting the spiritual well-being of the society, understanding that civil and spiritual well-being go hand in hand. Now, Zechariah chapter 3 presents for us a very vivid portrait of the gospel. Uh, This is a passage we often appeal to when we're trying to explain the doctrine of justification, that we, like Joshua, are clothed in our sin. Our our best works of righteousness are as filthy rags. And so here we are standing before the Lord with Satan there, the accuser of the brethren, the adversary. There's Satan to accuse us before God's throne of justice. And here we are like Joshua, clothed in even, even our best works as filthy rags, as dung, and as rubbish in the sight of a holy God. And so the Lord Jesus Christ comes and removes our filthy garments, our sin-stained lifestyle, our sinful decisions, our sinful thoughts, our sinful words and actions, even our, uh, the, the guilt of our sinful corruptions within us. He removes these things. Uh, he who knew no sin, we're told, became sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he takes our sin, the Bible says the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, and then he clothes us in the garments of salvation, the garments of righteousness, the royal robes of Christ's perfect righteousness and obedience. And so we're we're then found acceptable before God, and the accuser of the brethren can say nothing. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? For it is God who justifies, and moreover, it is Christ who died and was raised again. And so we use this as a picture and a portrait of redemption and of salvation. And you can see there, um, even Zechariah gets into it. I think verse 5, he he, he, um, uh, chimes in, let them put a clean turban on his head. He's even got a clean turban, right? We're We're clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and the angel of the Lord is standing by his people and giving them that perfect acceptance. And all of that is true. But we need to understand that in addition to that, not detracting from that at all, we also need to understand that in this prophecy, in this vision, is a corporate picture. It's not just speaking of individuals like Joshua clothed in filthy garments of their own sin, but in this particular context, Joshua is the high priest. He represents the entire nation of God's people. And in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus, you can see that one of the jobs of the high priest is to represent the people. He had uh, on his breastplate and on his shoulders the names of the 12 tribes of Israel And he was to bear their sin before the Lord in conducting these various ceremonies of blood sacrifice and atonement. He was to point forward 
to our need of a great high priest to take away our sin and to give us perfect righteousness. And, and yet, it's, it's important that we don't miss the corporate element here. The church, or you could say the, the covenant community of Israel at that time, the people of God, were characterized by these filthy practices in their worship and in their lifestyle. They had corrupted themselves. And so Joshua is not necessarily standing there as one who's clothed in his own sins, though he certainly was a sinner in need of the grace of God, but he's standing there representing the sins of the church at large in that day in the kingdom of Judah. And so as he's doing that, and as his sins are being removed, figuratively speaking, and he's being clothed in righteousness, what we have here is a picture not merely of individual salvation, but of corporate reformation corporate transformation. The gospel applied to the church at large. When the church is backslidden and the church is filled with filthiness and corruption, here we find the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the bridegroom who comes to his bride and washes her with water by the word. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who came to save his people from their sins, to take away their sins, not just their guilt, but the practice of sin the defilement of sin, the power of sin. Here he is reforming the church. That's what's partly uh, signified here because that's what Zechariah is saying in his whole prophecy. Return to the Lord. Give up your filthiness. I'll take it from you. And as you can see the emphasis in verse 7, if you will walk in my ways and if you will keep my command, then you also... Uh, shall judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts. He's calling them and equipping them for reformation. Reformation. And this is very instructive, first of all, that Jesus Christ is a reformer, that he deals with the corporate problems in the body of Christ, that he looks upon the sins of his people. Nobody sees or knows the corporate corruption and backsliding and disobedience of the church at large more than the Lord Jesus Christ. His eyes are as a flame of fire. Uh, he, he certainly nailed it on the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Every single one, he knew the problem. He knew the solution. He knew how to rebuke and encourage. And he knew the promises to set before them, to motivate them. Nobody reforms the church like the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of Jehovah, the angel of the covenant. And so I think it's instructive for us not merely to reflect on this chapter as, uh, as a paradigm for personal salvation, but also as a paradigm for corporate reformation. In particular, uh, the example of the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage, uh, three essential features at the very least that we can think about and be instructed by as to corporate reformation in the church. Three essential features, three essential ingredients that Jesus epitomizes here. He exemplifies these things, and we seek to consider them this evening. So first, the first thing that characterizes our Lord's reformation of the church of that day is this, love for the church. Love for the people of God because they are the people of God. Love for the church. We know this characterizes the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what motivates him to reform the church. Is that Ephesians 5, 25-27, he loved the church as his own bride, gave himself up for her, and now washes her with water by the word, cleansing her, to remove the spots and blemishes and wrinkles and present her as a glorious bride. This is why we do reformation. This is why Jesus is doing reformation. If any, if any of us are trying to do reformation and it's not motivated by this, understand we're not actually doing reformation. We're doing more harm than good. We could, we could try to come up with a word to describe it, but it's not reformation because reformation, true reformation is motivated by love for the church. Because if you're engaged in reformation, and it's true reformation, then in fact you're an agent and instrument of Christ, and so 
Christ is using you to reform the church in your place and calling, to promote that reformation, and therefore we know that it must be motivated by love for the church because that's, that's what Jesus uses and that's what motivates him. Now there are a couple things here, two or three things that, that show us his love for the church. First, notice his affectionate prayer. Uh, and we have to go back to chapter 1 and verse 12 for this, but you can see uh, chapter 1 and verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? This is Christ, the angel of Jehovah, the angel of the covenant. Notice in our passage that it's interchangeable back and forth. The angel said, Jehovah said, uh, back and forth because this is Christ himself. And notice how he intercedes. He's, he's asking for mercy. He's not looking at the defiled church with its filthy garments and saying, boy, this really stinks. It's ugly. It's unpleasant. It's so irritating. This is utterly pathetic. No, no. He's motivated by love. Uh, it's easy to fall into bitterness and cynicism. Believe me, it's very easy to fall. I've fallen into that. Sure, maybe you have as well. But, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. He's interceding on behalf of His disobedient people. Lord, how long will You not have mercy? There's an urgency crying down mercy from the throne of grace. Mercy on Jerusalem. Mercy on the cities of Judah against which You were angry these 70 years. Yes, they deserved it. But Jesus, as our intercessor, cries down mercy. There's affectionate prayer and intercession. And notice when Joshua comes before the Lord, clothed in these filthy garments. Satan is there to accuse. It doesn't say the angel of the covenant is there to accuse. It doesn't say that, that the Lord Jesus Christ here begins picking apart Joshua the high priest and uh, uh, going from head to toe, pointing out all of these filthy defilements. No, Satan's there to accuse. The angel of the covenant is there to intercede and to reform out of love and to show, we can say, a, a, a true reasoned and discerning affection for the church, even in her low condition. Doesn't mean we have to love the bad things about the church. Doesn't mean that we can't recognize the sins of the church as sins and even articulate that. But the fact of the matter is that we need to have an affection a prayerful affection for the church. You see this in Psalm 102, which we sang earlier. Notice what it is that brings revival and reformation in this psalm. Very powerful. Psalm 102, verse 13. You will arise and have mercy on Zion. See that affection, that loving kindness. Lord, shower them with your grace. Show them your mercy. And he's, he's confident. He says, you will arise and have mercy on Zion for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come. And we say, well, that's a bold statement. How do you know, psalmist under inspiration? How do you know what's the sign or the token that now God is ready to arise and reform and revive His church? Verse 14, for your servants take pleasure in her stones. Now, this is not the same kind of pleasure that the disciples took in the stones of the temple when it was being beautified in Matthew 24, and they're, they're wowed with the stones of the temple, and Jesus says these are all going to be thrown down through judgment. That's not the kind of love for the stones. These are not stones that are beautiful and built up in a finished, uh, perf perfected, completed work of architecture. These are the rubble of the church. The church has been cast down. The church, the temple as it were, has been burnt to the ground. It has been destroyed, not one stone upon another. And so there's this rubble, this heap of rubble, this heap of dust. For your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. 
That's the precursor to revival and reformation. Not mocking the church, rejecting the church, condemning the church, but rather taking pity and even having affection, even for the stones. Some of us have been through some uh, mighty unpleasant experiences in churches to where things were really good and then things got really bad and all you had left was a pile of rubble for a period of time. And there are two ways to react to that. And we could get into the alternative, but let's focus on the one God's calling us to, um, taking pleasure even in the rubble and showing basic solidarity with the church of God, even in her low condition, loving her, interceding for her, pitying her, basic solidarity. Notice that's what Jesus does in our text. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. What he's saying here is, I'm on the Lord's side. Of course, he is the Lord, but again, second person of the Trinity. Um, but he's taking sides with the Lord. I'm on the Lord's side, and these are the Lord's people, and this is the Lord's anointed high priest. And so, in solidarity with the Lord and his people, I rebuke you, Satan, or the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Notice, even, even when God's people were sent into exile under the Lord's chastening, even His curse, sending them to Babylon. Uh, Psalm 137, verses 5 and 6, we're told that even in that experience, that the backslidden, disobedient children of God uh, that have been sent into exile, the true believers among them, they, they said, we're not going to forget Jerusalem. It's in a heap of ruins. We're not going to forget it. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. We're not going to forget it. If we forget it, may our right hand lose its skill. If it's not our chief joy, the church of God, though it be cast down as rubble and dust, yet if it not be our chief joy, then let our tongue stick to the roof of our mouth. If we can't speak of it in that way, then we won't speak at all. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem and the Lord rebuke you, accuser of the brethren. Basic solidarity with the church. Now that doesn't mean that Christ doesn't rebuke the church. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't pronounce the seven woes against the religious leaders of His day. But I think it's fair to say that the predominant overarching tone and posture and attitude of Christ toward the religious community in His day was one of offering salvation. He says, I'm not here to condemn but to save. He rebukes for the purpose of humbling and saving. He calls men to repentance. Yes, He humbled them and He condemned their sin, but there was always a sense that this is our King riding uh, meek and lowly as, on a donkey, bearing salvation. This is our Savior. This is the one who comes to us to save us from our sins, not to condemn us for its own sake, but the tone, the posture, the attitude of Christ predominantly was that of a Savior, that of a gospel preacher who offered, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Come to me and I will save you. You see this in the prophets of old. You think of Isaiah. He, he rakes the church of his day over the coals numerous times for their sin. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and reveal to my people their sin. No question about it. But isn't the predominant overarching tone or posture or attitude of Isaiah, if you were to ask the people that rubbed shoulders with him, that heard him preach, or that have read through his prophecy, is not the overarching tone pointing to salvation and to Christ and to eternal life and communion with God and to opening up the wellsprings of salvation? Absolutely, that was the predominant overarching tone, posture, attitude. Think of Jeremiah. Uh, again, you can see many, many, many uh, condemnations of sin in the prophecy of Jeremiah. But what do we know him for? And what did the people of his day know him as? The weeping prophet. 
God had to tell him to stop praying for Jerusalem. He loved them so much and prayed for them so vehemently that the Lord said, okay, I'm still sending the exile. Stop praying about this. But that was his reputation. That was the impression. Though he condemned sin, yet he had a basic solidarity and affectionate intercession for the people of God. The same could be said of the Apostle Paul. Uh, When he needs to, Paul pulls out the heavy artillery and uh, at one point telling heretical false teachers to emasculate themselves. But what was the overarching tendency and tone and attitude of his ministry, all things being equal? And I think you can see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, the Thessalonians, Paul uh, rebuked for their idolatry. And we're told that they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Chapter 1, verse 9. But chapter 2 tells us the overarching tendency. Verse 3, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. He's not flattering anybody. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the Gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. So he's saying we didn't compromise an inch. Didn't compromise an inch. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. That was Paul's reputation because he's writing this under inspiration. He's not just tooting his own horn. This is an accurate characterization of his ministry. Not an ounce of compromise or of flattery, but we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the Gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the Gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly We behaved ourselves among you who believe. And you know, as you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we're told that they received Paul's word not as the words of men, but as the word of God. Why? Because Paul reflected the heart of God who is a father to his children and who loves his children uh, infinitely more than even a mother loves her children. Uh, Affectionate prayer, basic solidarity, a a balanced, charitable perspective. The angel of the Lord looks at Joshua and he doesn't say, filthy, pathetic, sickening, utterly unthinkable. No, he doesn't say that. What does he say? Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, look how far they've come when they were in their idolatry and they were in Babylon. They've returned. Yes, they haven't finished the job, but they've laid a foundation. The Lord is at work. They've fallen off the wagon, as it were. They need to get back to work. But this is a brand plucked from the fire. They're not in Babylon anymore. They're in the land. They're getting established the Lord Jesus Christ views His church with this balanced, charitable perspective. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Where were these people 10 years ago? We could say, where was their denomination 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, compared to where it is today? Jesus views it from this charitable, balanced, accurate, contextual perspective. And he does the same thing in his letters to the seven churches. Uh, it, it's, it's fascinating. Some of these churches are um, 
I'm not sure I'd want to be in these churches if I could help it. Some of these churches, you've got crazy woman preachers preaching heresy and all kinds of stuff. God's threatening to, to bring uh, judgment and kill these people, and it's really bad. I mean, it's really bad. There's no question about that. But that church where all that's happening, Revelation 2, verse 19, right after Jesus says, I have eyes like a flame of fire, notice, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Now, I quoted this this morning, but I'm just revisiting it to say, even in a really bad church, Jesus found something to focus on that was positive in connection with his balanced approach of bringing rebuke, but also bringing encouragement where it's warranted. He saw something in the rubble and the dust of Thyatira to build on. He saw that, and that's what he sees here among the children of Israel. More could be said. I mean, Jesus, he brings the seven woes in Matthew 23, but he also weeps over Jerusalem at the end of that chapter. So you see this love for the church, which is integral and essential. And mark my words, no progress of reformation will ever happen on any kind of sustainable level in the church without this love in the heart and with the lips. Secondly, the centrality of the gospel. The centrality of the gospel. The gospel in our text is presented not merely as the power of God unto salvation, but as the power of God unto reformation, corporately. It's this emphasis on the gospel that was the driving force in the Reformation, right? The Protestant Reformation from which we get that type of language in, in our Christian uh, and Reformed context. Uh, the Reformation was fueled by a rediscovery and a consummate emphasis upon the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of salvation through faith in Christ, His finished work on the cross, His resurrection, and... The, the, the power of the gospel to save sinners. This was at the heart of the Second Reformation, uh, as we see in the nation of Scotland. And we think of those that were involved in the Solemn League and Covenant, and uh, more broadly, the English Puritans as well. And so much of what was taking place in the 17th century, the Westminster Assembly, and eventually, the, the, again, the Covenants, the gospel was at the heart of it. Read the sermons of the people at the Westminster Assembly. Their sermons are gospel-oriented sermons. Now, they write elaborate treatises on questions and debates of that day, but if you listen or you... Well, you can't listen, unfortunately, but if you read their sermons and if you look at the, the bulk of their corpus of writings, it is predominantly focused upon the basic teachings of salvation through faith in Christ. That's the emphasis. If you look at the sermons of the Covenanters as they're out preaching in the fields and administering communion out in the open air under persecution, their sermons are focused largely on the basics of the gospel. Uh, they address various issues of covenanting. There's no question they had a broad knowledge of the whole counsel of God that they brought to bear when appropriate, but they were focused on the gospel. That's why they wanted a covenanted nation. That's why they wanted the freedom to obey God's word in the church because they wanted the gospel preached. And if you look at the Great Awakening in this country in the 1700s, you can see that at the heart of it, whether it's uh, Whitfield, whether it's uh, the Wesleys, although we'd have some problems with them in some ways, uh, but also you look at Jonathan Edwards, Samuel Davies, the Welsh revivals, all of these awakenings in the 1700s had one thing in common. They focused on the preaching of the new birth, being born again and putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation from the wrath of God. This was at the heart. There was a centrality of the gospel in these things. And that's what we see in our text as well. Uh, it's, it's not uh, an, an accident, if you will, that this portrait of redemption is also a portrait of corporate uh, reformation. 
Those two things go hand in hand. And so you look at this vision and you see Joshua clothed in these filthy garments. And notice that the filth of these garments is revealed to us in the presence of the angel of the covenant. It's, as it were, in the presence of Christ and His glory that the sinfulness of the people of God is chiefly exposed. Then He showed me, verse 1, Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Standing before the angel of the Lord. Uh, Verse 3, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. That language in Hebrew, standing before, literally means before the face of. The sins of God's people that needed to be reformed were brought to light through the light of His countenance. The glory of the face of Jesus Christ exposed their sins far more effectively than pointing the finger at those sins. Now, the Bible does both, no question about it. But what is most effective is that when we not only condemn sin from the law of God, but when we also present the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, the perfect law keeper, and His perfect righteousness, and the brightness of His countenance reveals our hidden sins, so that the church can realize what it's doing wrong and can repent and experience reformation. And so you see this in Psalm 90, verse 8. A precious verse that tells us so much about reformation. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your countenance. So if the church is to be reformed, the beauty and glory of Christ needs to be put on display. The salvation He accomplished, the light of His countenance, His loving kindness, His affection, His joy in His people, these things need to be set forth alongside the conviction of the law in order to give, in a sense, efficacy and power to the law in the hands of a mediator. And in the light of His countenance. Why does reformation not happen? Because we, I mean, best case scenario, if we're charitable, people don't know they're sinning. People think they're doing the right thing. In most cases, when there's need for reformation in the church, people think they're doing the right thing and they're misguided. It's a secret sin. It's an unknown sin. Yes, they're guilty for it. And yes, they should know better, but they don't. And Somebody needs to set it before them. But too often, we think that the the chief way to do that is just to get involved in a debate and start a food fight theologically. But this is telling us that the secret sins of God's people need to be revealed in the light of His countenance. Even as Joshua's filthy garments are exposed, standing before the face of the angel of the covenant. That's an important principle. You see it in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King. Uh, He also says, I'm in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You see, it applies broadly. It it applies to corporate reformation. Uh, The sins of the culture, the sins of the church at large are also revealed when we've laid eyes upon the King. Face to face. When we've seen Uh, the Lord's servant, the branch, who is proclaimed in this text. Now also, the centrality of the gospel is emphasized here in that the sins of Joshua are removed by Christ. The angel of the covenant sees the filth. He says, remove those garments. And the garments representing the sin of the people of God are removed. This is a picture, as I mentioned earlier, of the great exchange where our sin is removed and Christ's righteousness, those royal robes of perfection, are placed upon us to cover our nakedness and our shame in the sight of God. And we need to understand the same dynamic is true in corporate reformation. The sins of God's people collectively need to be removed by Christ. 
And we need to proclaim Christ as not just the sin bearer, but the sin remover who comes to save His people not in their sins, but from their sins. He comes to, to call us to and to enable us to put off the old man. Not just to put off the guilt, but to put off the old man with its lusts and to put on the new man in knowledge and holiness of the truth. The Savior, in other words, needs to be preached uh, as, the, as the one who's brought justification, propitiation, expiation, all of these wonderful Asians that take away our sin and Jesus saves us. He's God's servant, the branch. And that is at the heart of any gospel-centered reformation. Thirdly, the necessity of obedience. There is this essential feature that's often ignored and needs to be emphasized here this evening based on our text, the necessity of obedience. When you look at the Reformation, whether the first Reformation in the 1500s, second Reformation in the 1600s, or the Great Awakening in the 1700s, you can see a common thread that there was an emphasis upon the necessity of obedience to God. Not merely a gospel that says Jesus will, as I said, take away your guilt, but that Jesus is both Savior and Lord, and He calls you and equips you to a life of service in His kingdom. And so we can see in our text an emphasis here on the Lordship of Christ as necessary in any corporate reformation. The Lordship of Christ. Look with me at verse 6. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua. Notice that. He doesn't just, oh, I'm taking away your sin. He admonishes him. He exhorts him. He corrects him. He commands him. Jesus is not merely the Savior. He's the Lord. And this is the great high priest of Israel. And there's a greater high priest, a chief high priest. The glorious mediator of the covenant, the Lord Jesus, who commands even the highest religious officer in the, the covenant people of God. He admonishes him. Uh, and the irony here, of course, is that Joshua, as high priest and as one who bears the name Yeshua, is representative of Christ himself, who is the ultimate Yeshua, the high priest. But in any event, the Lord rebukes him or admonishes him. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and if you will keep my command, then you shall also judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among these who stand here. So the Lordship, he says, understand this temple, this religious body, this worship, this house, this church, this belongs to me. As Jesus said to Peter, I will build my church. Here he says, this is my house and these are my courts. It belongs to him. It doesn't belong to Joshua the high priest in the Old Testament. It doesn't belong to Zerubbabel as if the state had authority to come in and tell the church what to do. It doesn't belong to the elders and deacons and pastors and congregants in the New Testament church. This is my house and these are my courts. And therefore, he says, you need to walk in my ways and keep my commands. It's very clear. I love how the Bible is just so clear. My house and my courts, therefore, my ways and my commands. Uh, don't add to them. Don't subtract from them. Don't get creative. Don't try to bring in all these things pragmatically. No, no. My house and my courts, therefore my ways and my commands. That's what we call sola scriptura. It was the heart of the Reformation, not merely in terms of biblical doctrine. Don't make up your own doctrines, okay? But also for biblical worship and biblical church government, don't make up your own church offices. Don't make up your own church observances and worship elements. 
Don't get creative. You don't have to. It's real easy. Just my ways and my commands. Just get back to the Bible. That was the heart of the Reformation. That's the heart of every true Reformation. Is that the church ignores man-made religion and gets back to the Bible. If it's not in the Bible, then why do we need to do it? We don't. His ways, His commands, because it's His house and His courts. Uh, Precise obedience, not human preferences and human pragmatism. And so there's this fundamental obedience that begins in many ways with the leadership of the church, submitting the whole church to the Word of God. But also, in our text, notice there, there is this emphasis, I've already alluded to it, to a change not merely in legal status, but a change of heart and life. I mean, let's not think that the idea of removing clothing that's filthy and putting on clean clothing is only a metaphor or an illustration for justification. It's not. Uh, Because sanctification, not just the change of our status, but the change of our heart and our life by the Holy Spirit is also illustrated with putting off filthy garments and putting on righteous garments. A change of clothes if you will. And you can see that in Paul's epistles. Uh, Listen to Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3. And verses uh, 8 and following. Uh, He's just warned them of the sinful lusts that they're to put to death. He says, verse 8, But now you yourselves are to put off all these. This is filthy garments saying, put them off. Of course, Jesus will help you do that. He'll enable you to do this, but you need to do it. Put off all these. Anger, wrath, pretty much anger, um, boisterous anger, outbursts of wrath, malice, that's hatred and bitterness toward others, blasphemy, that can be Toward men, that word is used for reproach, evil speaking. Toward God, obviously irreverent, taking of his name in vain, or worse, mocking the living God, speaking uh, reproaches against God. Filthy language out of your mouth. Seems like that keeps coming up in some of the popular teachers today, Doug Wilson and others. Um, You know, we need to take this verse seriously, all of us. Uh, Put off. Uh, the filthy garments of filthy language coming out of your mouth, filthy uh, profaning of God or of sexuality and the, the sacredness of human sexuality within the confines of marriage. Don't be profaning that with filthy, filthy sexual language coming out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of Him who created Him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So it's saying, doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter if you're a Scythian or a Greek or a Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, even if you're a barbarian. Grace of God will sanctify you and enable you to put off these sins that are common to barbarians and all kinds of people, okay? Whether you're slave or free, where you're at in the tax bracket, doesn't matter. Christ is all and in all, and He will enable you to put off the old and put on the new. And notice, therefore, as the elect of God, Jerusalem, who has been chosen by the Lord as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on, and one of my children, I was making a point in family worship and of how we, we somehow oftentimes 
run too far afield of these principles. Uh, putting on this thing that's so important. What is it that we need to put on? And he, he illustrated my point well. He said head coverings, you know, because we can gravitate toward these ethical issues and controversies. And, and you say, well, when do we get to verse 16 about exclusive psalmody and all of these things? No, no, the bond of perfection, the, the thing that is most important that you put on is love. Love. Let's be sure that's the most important thing in my life and in your life to put on or put off, whatever you may think of this question or that question. Of course, the whole counsel of God. We study the scriptures. We try to obey every single command as best as we can. And there's a place to get on in the chapter and talk about singing psalms and so forth. But my friends, above all, he says, put on love. May that be the thing that we wear, that people notice who we are, that we're with Jesus, that we know Him, that we love Him. And may we not be well known for the uh, phylacteries that we wear on our garments, but rather love that we're putting on. And notice also the Lord makes an emphasis here upon consequences. Consequences. He says, if you will walk in my ways, if you will walk in my ways, and if you will keep my command, then you're going to enjoy these privileges, this usefulness in my kingdom, and then you are going to enjoy this blessing at the end. I'll give you the places to walk among these who stand here. Uh, perhaps referring to the, you know, the fact that the, the angel of the covenant is there. Perhaps this is a reference to heavenly glory. Perhaps it's a reference to service in the temple. The point is you will enjoy communion with God in the presence of His beloved people. And so there's an if-then. There, there are consequences. And I, I have to stress this, and we're wrapping up very soon. But there is, there is a tendency sometimes in focusing upon the sovereign grace of God to ignore the cause and effect outcomes and consequences of our choices, uh, what we sow, we reap. The scriptures are very clear that if we do certain things, certain things will happen. If we honor God, He will honor us. If we don't honor Him, we will be lightly esteemed. And, and our salvation is not grounded in this, my friends. But our experience and enjoyment of the benefits of salvation is very much grounded in this. If we walk in His ways, He won't need to chasten us. He, he won't need to bring all of the chastening that He's going to bring if we're rebellious. He doesn't need to. He's a loving Father. The, the Bible calls, calls His judgment of his people, his strange work. Uh, he, he, in a sense, has to go out of his way to correct us and to rebuke us and to chasten us and discipline us. But if we would simply walk in his ways, then he could give us honey from the rock and the finest of wheat, and we would enjoy more and more experience of his presence and his blessing in our personal lives, in our family, in the church, and as a nation. There's always an if-then whether it be the temporal blessing of God, and even in some sense, I can put it this way, uh, as Christ is offered to you for salvation, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. If you don't, you shall be damned. That's the if-then. And we know that it's only through the grace of God that someone receives that offer of grace and receives Christ as their Savior and puts their trust in Him. But the fact of the matter is, if you believe in Christ, you'll be saved. If you don't, you won't. There are consequences. There are consequences all the time in terms of how we respond to the commandments and to the promises of God. The necessity of obedience. My friends, King Jesus is riding forth to reform His church. We know that's His agenda. We know that He knows the sin of the church more than anybody. 
Think about that. He knows the church's need for reformation. He knows your need for reformation, my need for reformation. He knows all of our sins. Uh, he, he, he knew the sins that made Joshua's priestly garments rank with filthiness. He knew them perfectly, infinitely. Nobody knows sin and hates sin more than Jesus. Nobody. He has eyes as a flame of fire. And so he is concerned to ride forth for reformation in our own lives, in our families, and in the church. But Psalm 45 verse 4 tells us he rides forth in meekness, truth, and righteousness. He rides forth in meekness, truth, and righteousness. Are you riding with him? Am I riding with him? Are we as a church riding with King Jesus for reformation on those white horses, clothed in the armor of God, riding forth for meekness, truth, and righteousness? By God's grace, may it be so. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we confess that our best works of righteousness are filthy rags. And we have uh, many things we've done that are not even classifiable as best works of righteousness. We are sinners, the chiefs of sinners, as we consider our own hearts and our own lives. And we look at the church and we do see at times dust and rubble. We pray that you would give us the love of Christ that would constrain us to join Him in, in a work, in a labor for reformation in meekness, truth, and righteousness. We ask it in His name. Amen.